Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, filmmaker Walid Muanes on his film 1982. That's coming up on Endeavors. When the world talks about the Middle East, so much of the focus is on Israel, Palestine, the West Bank, Syria, and and Jordan. One country often doesn't get remembered and that country is Lebanon home to 6 million people and just over 4000 square miles it's one of the smallest countries in the world but like so many other countries in that region it's had its own complicated history let's say it has much Religious diversity is a place like Israel or or Egypt. But it's also, like so many other countries, had a history of war. There was, of course, the Lebanese Civil War from 1975 to 1990. And two separate occupations by Syria and Israel. And within the Lebanese Civil War... Uh, There was the Lebanon War in 1982, which was when Syria and Israel were fighting each other and Lebanon was caught in the middle. So you had a war within a war. And it's this era of time that is the backdrop of Walid Moness's beautiful, heartbreaking, bittersweet new film called... 1982 and it's about a boy who is 11 years old and as the war slowly creeps in to East Beirut and interrupts their lives he tries to get the courage to admit admit his crush to a girl. The film has a mix of English, French, and Arabic. Uh, it is set at a English, you know, school where they spoke English, but uh, being in Beirut, the, the, main la- the main language of that town was Arabic. The film stars largely non-professional actors with the teacher being played by Lebanese superstar Nadine Lebecki. Walid Moines has a background in music videos, working with people like Katy Perry, Rihanna, Keith Urban, Uh, as well as documentaries. But this is his first feature film as writer-director. I got to sit down with Walid last week and just talk about the film, you know, having a a love a coming-of-age story set against the backdrop of war, how much he draws from his own life, and what the West misunderstands about Lebanon and that region of the world. So this is my conversation with Walid Mouanes.
Walid one S. Hello, good morning. How are you? Or good afternoon. Hi, how are you? How's it going, Dan? Good, good. Good. Um, you have a, a new film out, 1982. Although it it's not really new because didn't it have its premiere three? Was it three years ago in Toronto? Yeah, we premiered right before the pandemic, Toronto, 2019. And then, uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, and then pandemic happened. So it kind of took a lull, but then it continued doing a festival circuit for like almost two years. And then it just sort of started appearing in theaters in Europe in November of 2021. So how does it feel to, you know, sort of finally have it out there in, in, in wide, you know, to, to the masses after all this time? It's, it feels, it feels like a gift. I mean, when you make a film and you think about how you design films, we design films for cinemas. And when the pandemic happened, people were like, oh no, like it's just gonna need to live on the small screen. And and I'm like, but the film was designed for the big screen. It wasn't designed for the small screen. It, it, I was, uh, it's, it's, it, I feel very fortunate. I feel very lucky. I feel very blessed because it showed me that the film spoke for itself. And what was interesting is during the course of a pandemic, whenever there was a festival that was doing live screenings, uh, and there were some, and especially in Europe, and I ended up going to some of these and every festival you had the interaction of the audience and whatnot, and it was so rewarding. It was very frustrating that it, 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 it was like, at one point it wasn't gonna see like a proper theatrical release. And now that everything's subsiding and the fact that it's getting this is just beyond beyond a gift, you know? But then time has a way of working things on its own, you know? So. I know that your your background is largely music videos and, and largely as a producer, and you've done some shorts and some documentaries. For you, was there a, a, a specific time that, that felt right to... Make you know do do a your your first big feature? Yeah, it was very interesting because um, I kind of went to film school and I was I was sort of like everybody. I did theater in undergraduate and I directed and then I did uh, and then I did uh, uh, I came out and did my master's in cinema at Florida State and then after that I came out to LA thinking I'd be here for a year. Uh, my track at university was always directing. And even if I tried to go away from it, somehow I always got back, pulled back into it. When I moved out to LA, I realized I didn't have a lot to say just yet. Um, though I did write, write, continue to write features, I didn't really push them. Uh, and then I realized that I like to work with other directors as well and to help visions come together. And then, so I built a career working with other directors, music video directors, etc. And then I knew it was, it was not even, I had no doubt that when the time is right, I will be doing a feature and, and it has to matter to me. And in my opinion, has to matter to the world as well. And then, uh, yeah, over time, I mean, I made the decision to foray into this in 2010 and then 2011, I started writing and then we delivered the film in 2019 and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it was meant to be. And I think the way the film is now, had I done it earlier per se, I don't think it will be the film that it is because I think it takes maturity to to bring narratives to life, you know? Yeah. The, it's called 1982 and it uh, takes place during the, the Lebanon war, it, which is, it, that was a very interesting time because it was, almost like a war within a war oh yeah there was there was the civil war happening and then this was an outside war and lebanon was was, was on top of everything else was, was kind of caught in the middle between israel and in and, and syria um for you what made that specific year and kind of that even specific week where it all happened so ripe for the setting of of a film um it was interesting because i grew up between two countries right i grew up between lebanon and liberia and being in these two places uh both of them were somewhat unstable clearly uh and 
And we were in a safe part of Lebanon, you know, in every war, what people fail to see is that like whenever we have wars or news or whatnot, everybody thinks the whole country is conflagrated as in on fire. But no, that's not the case. You know, as you probably know, every country that has war, that has safe zones and safe areas, people try to continue living. And Lebanon was the same. So we were in a, we were living in a, though there were skirmishes going on pretty much in different parts of the country, there's certain parts of the country where there was nothing going on. And so we were in Lebanon at the time. I was going to school at the time. And it was actually the first time that the war, actually the, the magnitude of the war just grew beyond the scope of all the previous battles that have happened in the country, where now it's overtaken the skies, it's overtaken the sea, it's, it's everywhere. And we couldn't escape it. And it was the first time I was actually witness to it. And, and I really didn't understand much of what's going on as a kid. So... It was more like, okay, we were watching the dogfights in the sky. The city was being shelled. There was smoke everywhere. The world and the color of the world changed. I remember very clearly. And then we, the school we, we were at had to be evacuated, though somehow we always had the sense that the school would not get bombed because we were on the quote-unquote safe side of the country. And, uh, and uh and we went home and three weeks later we left the country and really it was only 10 years later that i sort of came to understand what happened because um and then i tried to write a short story about it because somehow it was it was a thing that an event that marked me and i think and i realized also in the early 90s that it's an event that marked people all over the country because it was the first time east and west beirut opened up and I got to hear the story from the other side, and it was fascinating to me to hear both sides of this equation. And I felt it was necessary to bring this experience, particularly from the human side, to life in the film. What do you think the West misunderstands about Lebanon and, and that part of the world and the divide between you know, East Beirut, West Beirut, the Muslims, the, the, the Christians? I think the West kind of compartmentalizes everything and really wants to put everybody in a category, right? And over time, I've realized that, that, and it's the same in the US, it's the same in any country in the world, that there's always a left and a right. Yes, we could be on one side or the other. But what we fail to think is we fail to understand that, that we have to listen to the other side to see what their concerns are. Because at the end of the day, fear, like, like wars all over the world, even the distinctions that happened in the US between left and right are based on fear, fear of the unknown, fear of the other, fear of something being taken away from you, fear of, you know, fear, fear. And fear prevents people from talking to each other. Uh, what I think uh, the West does not understand is we are so imbued with the images of war and the images of like the Lebanon-Israel issue or the Lebanon-Syria issue or the Israel-Palestine issue. It's like, it's like there's people on both sides of these divides, but what we always see is whenever anything is news, it's just the clashes. So people's perception of that world becomes just about these clashing factions and these clashing factions are actually minorities that actually pull, pull, pull. What's interesting is the minor minorities in all of these places in the world are the ones that trigger these wars and these larger battles that become sort of geopolitical. At the end of the day, under all of this, there's people that are trying to live. This film really, uh, really sh breaks down that stereotype, particularly about Lebanon, because, because we are not a warring nation by any stretch of the imagination. The majority of this nation wants nothing to do with these wars that have been perpetrated upon us, you know? And I think it's the same everywhere in the world. There's people who are trying to live a normal life, etc., and then it becomes untenable, and then they have to leave. And then who stays behind? The warring factions. And this is, this is what's, re what's important, is actually to show how similar we all are, you know? When when this film is seen, for example, by I have I have Israeli friends as well, of course, and and who are like who've become very dear to me over 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 history, and I have a lot of Palestinian friends. And when this film plays, this film speaks to each person. It speaks to each person both in the sense of realizing like that we have to get past this. Let's I mean how identical we are as peoples. It's just like we are born 
into these uh, we were we were born into these separation into the into the state of separation and the state of segregation and and on both sides people are fed very very like radical views of the other and then when you see the other you're like wait we are exactly alike we just have to talk through our differences and this is really honestly this is one of the reasons i made this film is to transcend this you know given given that it appears that lebanon is always kind of caught in the middle between you know whether it's israel and syria or whether it's even like afghanistan and iraq is it is it difficult to remain neutral very for a lot of people of course it's 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 very difficult where it becomes really difficult is when the danger gets really close you know because then you are forced to take sides like in the film the kids are really the neutral force and then you see that in the adults you see that the adults are having to take sides and those sides not only those sides come from fear come also from pressure from peer pressure from from bigger notions and and the question is 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 do we have the choice of remaining neutral you know uh and sometimes like you know there's the 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 whole thing like if you're not with us like even for the neutral a lot of times even in the us like if you're if you're if you're taking a centrist point then you're against this and this you know what i mean so nobody you're nobody's friend effectively and i'm not sure i fully agree with this uh, you know when like when like reason rhyme and reason is diminished in the interest of of a cause that ultimately uh, doesn't really change the longer view of things. I mean, if we look at what's happened, we, we had a war in, in, in 1982, we had another war in, in 2006, then we had the explosion in 2020. It's like Lebanon, I mean, nothing has changed over the years. When you look in, pers- when you have a perspective and you see the history of everything, uh, not much has changed. So it begs the question, do these little do these battles and these big wars, big wars and small wars, how effective are they in changing or making things better? I mean, they're like putting bandages on something, whereas really at the end of the day, like one has to step back and be like, why why are we still here? Can we talk? I mean, obviously the problems aren't being addressed. War does not address a problem. War just basically tries to to bandage a problem or tries to temporarily halt something. But for anything longer lasting, I mean, I mean, people have to talk, you know, you uh, and see each other as human. I mean, this is really key. The the the, the centerpiece of the film are are, are these kids, and right. it's a coming of age, and you know, he he tries to sort of admit his 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 crush to this girl. Why was it important to, to juxtapose the, the, the innocence of, of childhood against sort of this horrendous backdrop? It's not really about it being important as much as it being sort of factual, because I really tried to, to, I predicated the film on my experience and perception of the time. I was not an adult at the time. I was a kid. And I think, I think as kids, we are not contaminated. And I wanted in the film to present an uncontaminated view of, of that world and of that experience as a whole. So even as the adults are losing it, the kids' worlds is so complete. Um, so that was really the objective, uh, honestly. So it's um, it just felt like I have to be true to my perception of that era at the time, in that moment of time. I didn't want to become the adult looking back at this time and being didactic with it because that's not what it is like i wanted to be completely in the emotional space that i was in as a kid and as a child at the time and i felt i presented the adult the polemics in the adult narrative because as you know lebanon at the time was split in half and you had a portion of the country that was working with the israelis and the portion that was that was against this invasion and 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 i didn't feel like the necessity to address this in detail because it also falls immediately in the in the it falls in the spectrum of left and right and i just felt presenting the point of views enough 
is just enough because I didn't want to make the film about the geopolitics and to explain the history as much as to explain the, um, the humanist and the emotional narrative of a people. I mean, that's what I set out to do. How much of your self or, or, or your youth would you say is in the character of Wassam? You know, how much of your youth is maybe in the character of, of Majid? Both. Uh, both, because I got into so much trouble <laughs> when I was a kid. I mean, another thing, another facet of the film is you also realize the connectivity, even, even in this, that time period when there was a war and there was no internet and everything. We, like everything that was in Europe and the Middle East um, was in Europe and the US also existed there. Um, so for me, it was very, um, it's, it's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. I mean, I got in trouble. I wrote a note to a girl and the note didn't say, I want to kiss you. I was like 10 years old and I wrote a note to a girl saying, I want to make love to you just because I learned it from Blue Lagoon and from um, and from Endless Love. And I got in trouble. My mom was called into school. They're like, what are we going to do? Like all of this, the, the emotional space of the characters for me, of both Majid and Wissam was, was very real. So... So in that regard, it's, you know, it's real. Yeah. You know, he, he, he spends, you know, the, a lot of part of the movie trying to admit his crush to Joanna. Um, why do you think it can be difficult, not even for kids, but adults to, 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 admit their true feelings for somebody or, or, or to speak their truth? Because vulnerability, I mean, we're always afraid of being vulnerable because when you're vulnerable, you expose yourself. And, and this was, this was Wissam being vulnerable, you know, I mean, he used the robot really to sign his love notes to this girl. And uh, I mean, it's shyness. It's what if you get laughed at? What if you get told no? If you get told no, this illusion of beautiful love that you imagined will get destroyed. I mean, it's it's all of that. I mean, at the end of the film, the illusion manifests and becomes really beautiful, as opposed to like, so so it's um, it's uh, it's a normal fear. I mean, we all have it. It's very it's very normal, and it's the beauty of it's the beauty of love. No, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> It seemed like a lot of the kids in the film, this was either their first film or they were largely non-professional actors. Um, what went into that? What went into that decision to sort of to to cast people who had never been in a film before? Um, it was necessary, actually, because I just feel like. Uh, I kind of felt with kids, I needed kids that were pretty raw to acting because I didn't want them to bring this baggage of having to be something. And I wanted them to be themselves. I took them through a very unusual process during the rehearsal process. Um, we cast a very wide net, like about 700 kids across a multitude of schools, all classes, all religions. This was very important for me to bring this together, to make the, the film not only um, the, the school, like the work itself, the film and the crew itself and the actors to be a microcosm of the country as well as the story itself. Um, from 700, we went down to about 150. Those came in for a second, more rigorous auditioning process from those who went to 30 who, who became a group and we would hang out. Hanging out, meaning watching like, like films like Au Revoir Les Enfants, watching films like uh, My Life as a Courgette, as a Zucchini, uh, the Wizard of Oz, The Goonies, uh, my short film, The Rifle, The Jackal, The Wolf, and The Boy. And it was not about what I thought. It was about what they thought. And I needed to understand what they were thinking. And, and part of the process, about three weeks into the process, when the roles were decided. But in this process, because it was such a group process, so you saw how the cliques formed, who became friends with who, who had crushes on who, all of this was going on. And then by the time we got to the shoot, the classroom was formed. About a week before, when we were doing fittings and everything, everything moved back to the school. Uh, whoever was not in the main role was a part of the classroom because they become part of this entity and they wanted to be there. 
and uh, and so I mean there was a they brought themselves to the roles rather than the roles went to them you know uh, and as we were working together a lot was rewritten to fit what they would do not what I think they should do and that's why they bring so much truth to the roles um, I think had I had actors who were already, for example, had done a lot of television or had done a lot of film before, that would have been a very difficult process, you know, because I wanted them to feel a little natural. And then, you know, the, re the reverse is true for the adults. You know, you, you have some yeah. heavyweights in uh, Nadine Labaki, you have uh, uh, Rodriguez. Rodriguez Slayman. Slayman. Yeah. Um, how, how important was it to have, to have those anchors against you know playing opposite these these young kids uh there were two decisions in that um it's basically uh i just felt like i needed that i, th I think delivering performances for adults is much more difficult than kids delivering performances and i would say admittedly that i did more takes with the adults than i did with the kids on almost everything um it was very important because of the readiness process. Plus I had a very limited time to shoot um, and I needed the adult actors to sort of represent as well. Um, and to be able to deliver such nuanced characteristics, it's harder to direct adults than it is to direct kids in my opinion, because adults come with their own way of how they should deliver lines. And it was very difficult to, to find the actors who didn't do that. And I think what was interesting and beautiful about the cast that I chose, I mean, even uh, you have Saeed Sirhan, who's Nadine's, who plays Nadine's brother at the beginning of the film. I just think that that scene is so powerful and it's so nuanced and it's so beautifully delivered and rendered by, by, by Saeed. Uh, to be the brother with all the dimensions and all the, the, the subtext there, I think, I think, those actors were actually actors who really listened to the character and brought up the character. And I think this is difficult to bring out from someone who's not trained as an adult or to find, especially because this is an ensemble cast. The one person though, who did also a phenomenal job. I mean, I think Rodrigue fit his, his role so beautifully. He also was nominated for an award at the Francophonie for the role. And then Nadine, of course, she embodied she embodied like the, the maternal, uh, what she stands for in Lebanon. She understood the narrative. We experienced this together. I mean, this was very important as well. Uh, and then there's Aliya Khalidi, who plays the secretary, Ms. Leila, who, is, uh, who comes from theater. This was the first movie she's ever been in. And it was very amazing to see her kind of come to life and find her voice on the small screen versus the theater screen. And... Um, uh, I feel very fortunate, honestly, with with that, with that, uh, with that cast, and I think the juxtaposition of the professional adults and the and the free and the free kids was so important, also because the adults' roles, by nature, and the characters they're playing have a suppression to them. They are all suppressed characters in a way. None of them is actually free because they are completely all of them victims of 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 the situation they are enacting right bringing to life and with that i felt you really needed someone who's seasoned enough to bring in the backstories through the through the dialogue uh, nadine is also <clears throat> uh, an acclaimed filmmaker and director in in her own right uh, what was that like for you working with an actor who also has this directing background uh she was amazing <laughs> honestly uh she just gave so much to that character i mean uh she read the script in 2013 she loved it and then you know i went off to finance the film didn't know when it was going to come about and then when it came about i told her that it came that it's going to happen and where she's like okay well uh 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 let me know when it happens, and then 2017 came about, she was in the midst of the edit on Copernone. She's like, let me reread the script. She reread the script. She's like, yes, I'll do it. 
and then what are your dates um, because the dates were a problem and when the dates were determined uh, they happened to fall on her vacation from editing Capernaum so it was like kismet and I just took this as a sign and then she gave me some days of her vacation to do to do this she was like phenomenal because she the first thing she said I remember when she and I had our first reading she's like I just want you to know I want you to be very comfortable asking for whatever you want and I'm an actor here and and truly she brought that to set we did not tell the kids that Nadine Labaki was was uh was performing in this in the film until she shows up in the classroom and everybody was like oh my god this is Nadine Labaki playing the teacher so it was very cute um what was fascinating with Nadine is the moment, because she's a director, she kind of also, I think her films are beautiful and her characters are so beautifully drawn out and so beautiful, like, so uh, delicate. Um, she took direction so beautifully, like whenever there was a nuance, like we kind of were always on the same page. Like, I'm like, just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And and like on the second take, it's done. It's like, she, she nails it because that that was very helpful. And that was beautiful. And of course, I mean, you do see how much of a maternal power she is in this film. She's the power, that teacher that everybody knows, that teacher that every teacher is afraid to be in that kind of situation, as well as the power of the emotional power of her performance and the love that she carries for both the kids and the men in her life for me was very important, you know? What was the, the kids first reaction to realizing that sort of perhaps the biggest name in current Lebanese cinema is their teacher? Uh, it was funny because at first it was like a little bit of awe, but what it did is it actually made the kids behave better in the class, you know, immediately because they're like, you know, and at one point, at one point she, you know, I mean, kids are kids, right? So we're getting ready to shoot. We're getting ready to, to take. I've got, I have a whole army of casting, of, of cast uh, ADs, like trying to basically quiet everybody down. And then really what was very interesting is when Nadine spoke, they quieted down. <laughs> so they listened. They were very taken by her. I mean, they, they, they really, really loved her. So, yeah. The other character uh, that intrigues me is Mr. Brown, played by yeah. Alistair Brett, who's yeah. you know this this British principal of this school in in the Middle East. And and you, I I guess I was surprised at the amount of English that was sprinkled in throughout the film. Is that is that based is that character based on? Uh, a, a principle that you had? Yeah, his name was Mr. White. <laughs> yeah, uh, the character is based on that. Uh, this was like, uh, the school I went to was was founded in the 1800s. It was a Quaker school and there were always uh, faculty that were British uh, or American, uh, but mostly British. And I felt that it was necessary to bring that in just because it's also like like Lebanon is a post in you know it's it's a it's a post-colonial country so at one point in history and I and I and I just think that that was sort of important to put that to to include that element this is an element I grew up with it's an element that's very real we also speak multiple languages like we do in the film we mix the Arabic and the English and the French depending on the schooling uh, and it's also it also posits the notion of east-west uh, of of Kulina, You know what I mean? Whereas, like, like, will you? I mean, he's he he is really watching this, trying to be helpful. But the question is, is he helpful? You know what I mean? He is like like the secretary is really the person who carries who carries the weight of the school more than more than more than he does. And and because he is in shock at what is possible, what is happening in that country. So the question is, will he be able to solve this? Not really. So he just chooses at the end to become a participant, just like all the other teachers, because he's not like he's not the master of this. Uh, you know, we, we talk about the, the multiple languages. Was yeah. it was it always set in stone for you that it was going to be uh, Arab 
uh, Arabic first as opposed to, to French yeah. first? Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because the, that's that's how literally it's it's how we speak. It's how we talk. Um, and some people speak more English than Arabic. Some English, some Arabic than English. Um, generally, the Anglophone schools, which is the school that I went to, I was an Anglophone as opposed to Francophone, which are the French-leaning schools. Anglophones tended to speak more Arabic in the playground and in general the kids together than than the Francophones, where the kids would speak more French together than, and less Arabic. So, so yes, this is very realistic. It strikes me that, you know, even though it was about, a, you know, a war that happened 40 years ago, it's still very relevant with, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that we're seeing in the world, you know, whether it's Ukraine, Ukraine. Or, or even, you know, Syria, which hasn't really gone Come out of anything, um, yeah. Um, what... Would you give any advice to people who are living through war in their country? Wow, that's a tough question. Uh, advice. I mean, one, I wouldn't wish war upon anybody anywhere in the world. Um What's very painful about what's going on in Ukraine is it's kind of history repeating itself because we don't really know we don't really know what is going on in Ukraine. I mean, we do know that there's an invader and there's a country, but like we're getting the military story. We're never getting the people's story. My question is, because in Lebanon, we also fought very hard, like every side fought very hard for what they believed is right. But at the end of the day, it's the people who paid the price. And the people who are not participating in this war, who never wanted the war, whose lives were changed overnight. And this is what just happened in Ukraine. This is what happened even in New York on September 11th. This is, you know what I mean? This is what happens to these, to these families and this small town, Uvalde, Texas, and any other shootings that happen in the US. It's like, what is, like, I don't, I don't, really, I mean, we just have to be, I just think we, I don't know if we can achieve and arrive at a collective consciousness about the insignificance of these, of these battles over material things, as opposed to finding, forcing ourselves to find a way to talk through stuff. Because obviously, like the Ukraine war is based on fear. And it's, it's, it's literally, it's the, what's happening in Ukraine is bigger than Ukraine, right? It's a geopolitical issue not very different from what happened in Lebanon, even though it's a much smaller country, it's a geopolitical issue. And, but the people of Ukraine are fighting for their, for their, for their, for their identity, right? But we don't know a lot about what's going on. We have, you have the Russian Ukrainians, the Russian allegiance to Ukrainians, and you have the, the Western allegiance to Ukrainians, and they're both fighting each other, and they both believe in what they're fighting for. But at the expense of what, you know? I just think that the world should be more forceful in forcing ceasefires so we can really get to the bottom of it, figure out how best to solve the insecurities of the other, because wars are only the results, results of the insecurities of the other about their existence. I mean, that's the problem. And But are there leaders who are brave enough to do this? Not really. Or are these wars just being perpetuated because they're effectively just economic necessities for the world as we uh, for the current structure of the world i don't know but uh i mean i i'd say my advice is is to to just be aware that wars are not wars are not what they seem really and they're never the answer how would you describe the current situation in lebanon not good <laughs> Not good. Uh, the one thing that's really interesting in Lebanon is nobody wants violence, you know, at least so we hope. Uh, the people absolutely do not want violence. There's been a couple of skirmishes that have tried to reimpose violence and reintroduce violence into, into the polemics of the country. Right now, Lebanon is as polarized as it was in 1982, unfortunately. And the young people are trying to take over the country. But what's happening in Lebanon is we have warlords, the same warlords who destroyed the country 30 years ago are still in government today. 
and they're still strong today, though we just had elections. Uh, these elections introduced about 21 new young voices who are progressive, who are not allegiant to any of that, but we're still a minority. Uh, and what happens is the unfortunate thing is that every single person in Lebanon believes that the only reason the government of Lebanon is the way it is right now is because it's supported by international powers, because of the people's voice were seriously allowed to take a hold, this government would not be what it is, unfortunately. And, uh, and I don't think, I think geopolitically Lebanon is sort of stuck right now between East and West, the same way it was, though it's not a war war, it is an economic war that's pretty debilitating and a lot of brain drain, unfortunately. You know, we, we, we talk about sort of the, the innocence of youth and the, the, the fantasy world that children can live in. And Wissam's big thing is his, this robot Tigron. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was it about, you know, uh, uh, this this sort of transformer-like character specifically that um, that you think helped we some get get through the times? <sighs> um, well, I mean, there's a feeling that this character does right. Uh, I mean, we can't give away the end, or can we? So, uh, the First of all, like as kids, we used to watch, I used to watch like this animation called Grandizer, which was about like um, a protector of a planet. And this is what this represents. And at the same time, it represents love. It represents hope. <coughs> Excuse me. It represents a lot of really important things for Wissam. And this is, uh, this was necessary. Um, and uh I don't know. I mean, it's hope really that drives that, that drives these kids. And it's, it's the belief that anything is possible as a kid, when you're 11 years old, you think that the whole world is, is good. And you think that the whole world is possible. I mean, the film ultimately is a coming of age because what happens at the end of the film is a complete rejection of growing up, being forced to grow up in the situation. So, so you go into the kid's imagination completely into the fantasy world that is a much more beautiful world. So this is like really important for me. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, we kind of, when things like this happen around kids, kids get contaminated by the, by adults, unfortunately. And, and this makes, this, this, this is, this film is about that cusp where you're like, you're innocent, you're aware, you believe, uh, even like, I mean, he doesn't care what religion this girl is, he's just in love. I mean, that's all that matters. And then, and then of course, his brother gives, is the first inkling, his brother's like, isn't she Muslim? And he's like, I don't care, you know? Even his brother who's only four years, three years older than him cares. His brother knows about the checkpoints in between. Whereas Wissam is like, everything is possible. I need to, I, I just need to get to her. I mean, that scene between the two brothers is very important. So, so the film really stands at the cusp of innocence and its loss. You know, it's like you have paradise for the first half and then paradise getting lost in the second. You, you know, I, that, that very last scene, I think could be interpreted a couple of different ways. Um, many. Many. Do you, obviously, as the the writer director, you have your own thing of of what of what yeah. that a, a feeling of of what that scene means to you. Um, but what do you want audiences to take away or 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 realize about that last little bit? That once something like this happens, the world can never be the same. There's two last scenes in the film, really. The scene where Tigran really saves Beirut in the imagination of the kid. And then when you go back to the school where the world is never the same, where the school is different, the feeling of the school is different, the animals have taken over, the sounds of nature are inside the school instead of out inside the classroom. So it's really about the world like when something like this happens, you question one, was it worth it? Is it worth it? War is not the answer really. And the, the, the insane feeling that you have after, after seeing the country 
after real the ex machina of the country being saved and then realizing that no it's just that the world will never be the same again not for the kids not for the school and you wonder when they're going to come back i mean that's really the message that the feeling that 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 the film leaves you is is, is a little heavy at one point it's a relief when you see tigran appear but then at the end, it's, it, it feels a little heavy. And the reason is the world will never be the same. And you question, what was all this about? Your question, are wars really ever the answer? And in my opinion, they are not. And we have to be brave enough to find another way. Is, is there any symbolism associated with the pigeon? Um, you know, because we see, we say, <laughs> since when do we have pigeons at our school, they, they kind of make an appearance to notice. Is there any significance to that? Uh, in Lebanon, we had a lot of, and I'm sure, I think in a lot of Middle Eastern cities, uh, there's a lot of homing pigeons and rooftops. And usually when a rooftop is gone, they have to find somewhere else to be. Uh, they are, there's symbolism. It's very funny that you say that because there's so many different reads for this. But for me, it was just a feeling when I wrote them into the screenplay to the point that that when my when I was when I was getting ready to shoot the the team was like we don't need pigeons right they're just like figurative right I'm like no 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 I need them and they're like why I'm like trust me I need them I don't know like I need them it was a very important thing for me it's a feeling I always deal with animals as well uh is there a symbolism to them there's a lot of things to them basically they 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 are sort of a harbinger rather than a hope for some from for me and and for some people there are actually hope uh for me it means that the world will never be the same it means these people these pigeons have come from somewhere why are they here who are they what are they and they are also a, a metaphor for displacement because they've lost their roof and now they're they found another roof and then there's the kids and the kids have been displaced and the pigeons. And at the same time, there's also the nature versus man thing. I mean, birds belong in the sky, but they can't be in the sky because the sky is so contaminated. I mean, there's there's a lot of different layers to what the pigeons are. At the end, it's a feeling, you know? So, how, how, how was it, you know, working with animals can always be tough and animal wranglers can 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 get expensive just just from a a a technical aspect what what was that experience like we had a wonderful wrangler he had a lot of (coughs) excuse me a lot of pigeons on his rooftop we went to visit him and his rooftops and the pigeons and what was very interesting is like we got the pigeons to the school and we're shooting and and of course we had to have the pigeons staying on the window so they don't fly away so we we had we had filament on their on their feet just to kind of stay put and they did stay put but then when we needed to have the pigeons on the rooftop it's like okay just release them and let's see what sticks <laughs> so it was very funny what was very funny is there was a pigeon there were a couple of pigeons that you know he's like but once they fly away they fly away that's it right so we did the shoot. I didn't focus too much on the pigeons when I was shooting with the kids because I knew I was going to like, let me, I said, let me edit and I'll come back. And if I need to shoot more of this, then I can. So that's what we did. And when I came back and we got him again, I'm like, wait, wasn't this the same pigeon that flew away? He's like, yeah, it flew back home. So the same pigeons that we shot six months before we, the edit, we shot six months later because the pigeons returned to their home from that school, which was in the mountains all the way back down to Beirut. And then the same pigeons he brought back, which was very funny. Um, I mean, you can't really, I mean, clearly what you do is basically you just shoot and you just hope that they give you what they give you. And the pigeons are are pretty like, I mean, they did what they did. And I was very fortunate in how they behaved, honestly. Like, it was like, okay, let's, so we were very quiet. We just let the pigeons do what they did. And that's what you see. Uh, and I noticed in, in the credits, I think you, I think you actually name three of the pigeons i did <laughs> i can't believe that you noticed that that's very cute it was just that it was just a joke between me and my land producer yeah uh, one other yeah. thing you, you you mentioned a little while ago about you know th- this idea about how you know kids can get influenced or corrupted by the adults, adults. the adults in charge and i think we're seeing that a lot 
in today's society, you know, there's a divide between, you know, pro-vax and anti-vax or, you know, pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian or democratic and Republican or, you know, as, as someone who has lived an experience not unlike the one in the film, how, how would you combat the, the, the massive divide that we're living in and, and the, the, the online it's, radicalization that can so easily happen? It's so hard because it is, in a way, it's propaganda and it's brainwashing. And I think it goes back to the school system and to, to who writes the narrative, right? So unfortunately, what happens, what's happening is, 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 is there's a choice of narrative that's, that's going on. And I don't know that, I don't really have a remedy for that. Um, like, I'll just tell you in Lebanon, our history books stop in 1976, the war started in Lebanon. Nobody talks about what happened in the war. You know, it's all through parents telling their kids, oh, they did this to us, they did this to us, they did this to us, but never really telling the other side of the story. I think, I think somehow we need to arrive at a structure historically where we can actually, where, where history and the history books need to approach everything from a more humanist space in which you actually talk about the human experience on both sides of a divide rather than on the political or the geopolitical interest sides. And what happens is, you know, as we all know, history is written by the victor. So when history is written by the victor, you have a possessed, dispossessed, you have, you have, you, you know, um, you have uh, a, what do you call it? An invader, invade. You have like, you, you know what I mean. Every then, 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 then you're like, which story is correct? And we both know, like, not neither story is a hundred percent correct. You have to look at both sides of the divide. And unfortunately, in the Middle East, nobody does that. Like, you know, I mean, I think the Israeli-Palestinian issue is the same. Like, like you know, they choose what narrative to tell here. They choose what narrative to tell here, and then good luck. And then that creates even more conflict. And this is what's happened. What well, these are the divides that still exist even in the United States today. I mean, the guns versus, I mean, come on, like, like there has to be a middle ground. And the middle ground is by seeing both sides, bringing both sides together to the table to talk. Like, and talking is a hard thing because talking means compromise. Talking means understanding the other. And there are people and there are elements and there are governments who are really simply for geopolitical interests, unwilling to present a situation where, where there's a preparedness to compromise. And without a preparedness to compromise, there's only one thing, let's, let's battle it out. And we know that that's not gonna solve the problem. When, when we hear the word humanism, I think a lot of people think that it's you know secular not uh, like a secular non-religious type of conversation although it doesn't always have to be exactly can can that survive in a in a region like the middle east these these conversations that that don't have any very hard. religious connotation <clears throat> associated with them it's so hard it is so hard it it would take a, i mean Here's the thing is you need generational, this is not something that can be done over one generation. It's something that can be done over two generations and three, you know, where you kind of create enough trust to warrant religion unimportant, less and less important to life. Because what happens, and I have this in my family, are some people, they're just very attached to their religion because they think that's protecting them, you know? And I think the opposite. Like, I think I'm a secularist by nature. Uh, so I believe in secular governance. I believe in equitability of in every in every way, shape, or form. I believe in like <clears throat> uh, a society that's based on merit and all of that. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't, and it it takes it takes several it takes a generation, two or three at least, to be able to really build build a progressive secular nation. And it's very hard in the Middle East to do that. In Lebanon, I think Israel is the same because the identity is very grounded in the religion to the point that it stops people from seeing past that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's my, 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 my point of view. So, and I think what happens, for example, is with the perpetual wars that keep happening, they keep contaminating generations right like let's say i'm i'm a child of the 1982 19 the, the war of the 80s in lebanon right then there was a lull 
become there was a very small skirmish like in 96 and then after that and then you had 10 years later you had the 2006 the 2006 war was for me yes i mean there was like a threat and hezbollah and israel and all of that but at the end of the day unfortunately that war contaminated a whole new generation that had had 10 years of quote unquote Yes, it's an armistice, but it was somewhat peaceful. So what happened is when you do this every 10 years, you're contaminating a generation, you're recreating and and rebirthing a new anger. And this anger is gonna somehow reappear in a new generation. It's it's just pushing pushing the conversation 10 years down the line. I I think the impulse to battle should just stop because we need to have people who don't have a painful memory to attach this to, but rather a memory that they could look at with a certain level of pragmatism and perspective rather than with an emotion. And unfortunately, unless we stop reintroducing battles after battle after battle, it will not solve the problem. You know, at at least in in the West, a lot of the... The, the younger generation are less religious, I think, than, than, than previous generations are, are, are much more, or at least much more open to a, a secular lifestyle. Is, is that happening, do you think, in, in, in Lebanon and the Middle East at all? Are our children, are the youth being exposed to more secular ideas? The young people are. Uh, we don't have a voice. Like we don't we, like right now we have a few new elements that are secular that are skewing secular in 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 Lebanon. But unfortunately, what's happened and what hap- what we have in Lebanon is and this is something that that uh, some major factions are interested in, in in maintaining, which is basically we have what is called the confessional system. You know where like or like X amount of people can, this this person can be president because he's this religion, this person can be speaker of the house because he's this religion. I mean, this is a system that is archaic, broken, and unfortunately they're trying to perpetuate it. We're trying to break it, but you know, but that's somewhat constitutional. It's a spoken constitutional, it's not a written constitution over the years. So, uh, the youth and the young generation, of course, one hundred percent, because we we want uh, we want uh, what do you call it? civil civil marriage. We want like uh, rights for everybody. You should choose who you want to be with. Women should have the right to give citizenship to their sons. They can't. It's 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 insane. And all of these are grounded in these religious sort of sort of roots and they need to change somehow and the only reason they're not changing is because you have a government that's been there for 40 years it's the same people and they are dogmatic in their religious in their religious and i'm not talking about muslim christian or druze or anything all of them all of them you know i mean i come from a christian from a, from a christian maronite background and they are staunch about this like it's crazy and and which is surprising it's like we have not yet moved into the century, and I think it's going to be a while. You know, the 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 film, in a lot of ways, is about the innocence of, of childhood, and I'm curious when when you're working with these kids who know nothing really of of this war that that, that happened. How do you maintain that innocence? <sighs> you don't. You can't really. I mean, once you contaminate people like this, you can't. They experience it, and then what's interesting is 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 kids kind of take on the the take on the trauma of the adults around them, right? Here, you're still in the space of a school, so there's not enough adults to bring the trauma to the kids. But once these kids go home, the trauma of the parents will trickle down and and see and and seep into their their psyche. The you know out of everything that this film this film talks about is there one thing that you want audiences to take away and is is it is it different depending on whether it's a western audience or a middle eastern audience um 
I don't think it's, I, I think the feeling that people walk away with, whether it's Western, I mean, the film has really been so beautifully received in Europe uh, and, and European audiences, as well as among like Eastern audiences. And there's a uniform, there's a uniform feeling and the uniform feeling is like, what was all this about? Why it needs to stop? I mean, that's really the, the very core of my message. So I just think that, I mean, if I'm given the choice, I would eliminate weapons from the world. So maybe I'm, I'm too uh, idealistic, but, you know, and force a conversation. I think conversation has to be forced at this point because this can't go on. And, you know, the film, theater, and the arts is is a great way to initiate conversations. 100%. What what would you say is the the current status of cinema or or, or the arts in in, in Lebanon and across the Middle East? I think think there's an explosion of that. I mean, Lebanese cinema, as you know, is doing very well. I mean, we've had some incredible films from some of my peers who are doing really beautiful work. We had them in Venice. We had them in Berlin last year. Um, And then uh, there's more films coming. Uh, The only thing is that when it comes to issues that are delicate, uh, there is the fear of censorship. But in Lebanon, at least we get by. In the Middle East, most countries do have a censorship. For example, like there's fear that there's an Egyptian film uh, that won the Screenplay Award uh, in Cannes, which is um, by Tariq Saleh. Um, chances are it will never screen in Egypt. It's an Egyptian film. It's about Egypt, but it wasn't shot in Egypt. It will never screen in Egypt because it's too controversial, it's too honest. Uh, there is some sort, there is, there is definitely, there's a bit of a way to get past the, the mores in a way and past the censorship and into sort of a bit more of a freedom of expression. Right now, there's an illusion of it. Lebanon does have a lot of directors and a lot of filmmakers who are stating very loudly what they want, but those films, unfortunately, are not getting screened in Lebanon. They travel the world beautifully, but they can't screen in, at home. Uh, and some are, but you have to be very delicate in how you constitute the messaging, which, you know, you need to arrive at a place where you can actually state bluntly what you want to say, but that's freedom of expression, hundred percent. And the Arab world is a long ways away from that. Is, do you feel like there's any hope in, in terms, you know, for, for Lebanon, for, for that region, um, in the next you know, 50 years or so to have sustained peace? 50 years? <laughs> uh, well, the whole region, I don't know. Uh, I think with the current leadership and the current systems in place, it's not. It's almost like not possible because it's almost a policy of perpetuation, of separation, perpetuation of, of dogma, per- I mean, what's really surprising is I think, I thought, and I think everywhere uh, we would be much farther along, you know, uh, in the peace process, we would be farther along in Lebanon as a nation, as a collective, we'd be farther along. Unfortunately, uh, history has proven that wrong. And, um, and I don't think we're ready to assume the lessons of the past to build a better future. You know, when that happens, that means there will be a complete change in Lebanon. There will be a complete change of outfit, like also in Israel and in Palestine, where you have a young generation that's actually willing to see past it. You have brave leaders that could actually talk about differences and make a difference and make the right compromises to build nations. And right now we don't have nation building governments anywhere. Well... The film is 1982, uh, and it opens in select theaters in New York on June the 10th, followed by uh, locations in Los Angeles on June 24th, uh, expanding nationwide, I believe, uh, throughout the summer. Uh, any international release dates? We just Actually, we just opened in Mexico last week uh on the may 26th and we just opened in brazil this week on may 2nd 
nothing in Europe because it already opened in Europe in the fall. Uh, but I'm very happy and we're working on Canada right now, potentially for July, August as well. So it'll be all of the Americas. Uh, and it's really been beautifully received, like in all these countries. I'm very excited. So. Well, it's a, a, it's a fabulous uh, piece of cinema uh, and it's a very important, um, I think, educationally for, uh, for uh, a lot of people. Uh, yep. Walid Mouanas, thanks so much for, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dan. Really, really appreciate it. Well, that was my conversation with film director Walid Mouanas. His new film, 1982, is out now. That does it for me today. I will have a second show up this week on the usual Friday. Actor Quasi Thomas will be joining me. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time. Bye.